Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. Today I'm here with Joe Martineau and Mark Pedroli. Hello, Joe and Mark. Good morning. Good morning. We're going to talk about the Missouri Sunshine Law today. And uh, before we get started, Joe, why don't you tell us about your practice? Yes, I'm an attorney with Lewis Rice. I've been there since uh, 1982. I'm a SLU, St. Louis University uh, law grad. Pretty much for my 40 years of practice, I've been representing mainly media entities, although I do other things as well. I've had quite a bit of experience with the Sunshine Law, litigating Sunshine Law cases, uh, most of the time just advising the client regarding Sunshine Law issues. I do some intellectual property law, some health law, and uh, I think that's probably a fair statement of what I do. I see you're also an adjunct professor of communications law at Washington University. Yeah, that's something I've done for almost 30 years. It's primarily for undergraduate students and primarily in the area of journalism. What does that encompass? Pretty much the gamut from uh, libel, slander, defamation, invasion of privacy, copyright, Freedom of Information Act and Sunshine Law, you name it. A lot of time spent on entertainment law and publicity rights and things of that nature. A little bit FCC, but not much. Mark, tell me about Pedroli Law. So I've been practicing for a, a while and about 20 years, always on the plaintiff side. I've done a lot of different type of plaintiff work throughout my career. Today, it is primarily civil rights litigation in federal court. I would say that's probably 80 to 90 percent of our practice. And the rest of it is transparency law and litigation regarding the Sunshine Law. You are the founder of Sunshine and Government Accountability Project. Tell me about that. So this started a few years ago, got engaged sort of in, well, got into a fight <laughs> with uh, a government and realized how important the Sunshine Law was and decided to start this organization so we could work with other attorneys and other folks who needed help, including attorneys and just regular people who didn't have access to the courts or lawyers to help them get information from government when they needed it. And since you know, we started it, we've been involved in now multiple litigations throughout the state against state offices, local offices, and municipalities trying to get records and set the law straight and get some of this stuff in front of judges that we believe have been ignored too long. For example, a lot of local governments have routinely covered up records that may have anything to do with personnel will argue that those records are public records, and we think that they're sort of abusing the exceptions to the Sunshine Law. So we've had great success doing it. We've also generated some public interest, which was sort of one of the reasons we wanted to do it. We wanted it to be educational. We wanted people to understand what the Sunshine Law was and how important it was to a functioning democracy and understanding how government works. Let's do a little bit of a deeper dive on that. Government officials are considered to be our public servants. We pay their salaries. What is, and I'll direct this to both of you, the importance of statutes like this, open record statutes, to the overall functioning of a democracy? Obviously, I think it's extremely important. The media clients that I represent would not have access to much of the information which they report on and which they act as a messenger to the public about, if not for statutes like this. The statute's been in effect longer than I've been practicing. It goes back to the mid-70s 
and it's basically followed the whole Watergate issue and conspiracy. And at the same time, the, you know, the Federal Freedom of Information Act was enacted. I think states in general realized that access to government was important and access to governmental information is important. And the reason these statutes, I think, are especially important is that, you know, the courts have not recognized any sort of First Amendment right of access to governmental records. So it's been incumbent upon legislatures to enact those statutes. The fundamental issue there, and I think we're dealing with that right now in Missouri legislature, they want to cut back on this statute with some legislation that's pending. You know, what the legislature creates, the legislature can take away. Right. I think that transparency is an American value. I've lived overseas. I've seen governments that have a lack of transparency. I've lived in countries that were autocratic. I've lived in countries that it would be considered a soft dictatorship where you don't have any of these laws. And the media and the press in those countries have different rights. They don't have the ability to even access the information, let alone to print criticisms of the government or the king in these countries. So I, I believe it's what separates us from the rest of the world. I think it's an American value. I also think that it's something that both political parties, all political parties agree on. It's like one of the few things today where Republicans and Democrats routinely agree is they all want transparency in government. So it's fascinating to me that while you have you know, these rank and file Republicans and rank and file Democrats all seeking information for different reasons, but all seeking access, that at the same time, the government in Missouri is trying to scale back and take away the ability of these all of these people to get these rights. And so that's part of the reason that we like to educate and talk about this is because we believe Democrats and Republicans need to join together to prevent people who are in office, no matter what party they are, from preventing access to government records. I worked in a government office a number of years ago, and it was a frustrating situation where I ended up losing my job because I disagreed with leadership. And that has uh, jaded me about when you go by a, a building that says, you know, department of whatever on the building, you know, is it really doing that work? I hope so. But if one person in the neighborhood says, hey, I really want to know, they have a tool like this to say, no, I can dig in. I can, it's like I can open the door and get in there and look around and see what's happening. You know, you can send a letter to your political leader. Hey, please tell me something. And you might or might not get anything useful back. You can go to Q&A sessions with politicians, which are becoming increasingly choreographed. And, you know, you might not get a real answer. In fact, they'll probably, if you look at the national level, they'll answer a different question than the one you asked. If they even have them at all. Yeah. I know a lot of them in my district, certainly, and in St. Louis County, don't even have these meetings at all anymore. Yeah. They call them town halls. My congresswoman, for instance, she doesn't have meetings at all. You right. get regular emails that basically includes what she wants you to know. And that's all that's there. And you can, and I've done this before. I've asked questions in response to those emails. I've sent her letters, well, letters by electronic means asking, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? I just see your, my most recent newsletter or see my most recent email. You know, that's all you get back. And I, if I could just add sure. one thing to what Mark said, because I think it was a very good point, And I don't have the, uh, the benefit of seeing other countries and how they handle it. I've always felt that in this system, the United States and generally transparency is more evident than anywhere else. But Mark has kind of confirmed that. But with respect to his uh, point about everybody believing in transparency, rather, I think everybody does, at least they say they do, but it's transparency of whom. And when it's directed at you, and you said this, you know, the agency that you work for, the governmental entity that you work for, they weren't comfortable 
with what you were telling them. They may not be comfortable with sharing information. And that's, I think, what drives some of this attempt that's going on to cut back on these statutes. Transparency for thee, but not for me. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my last suggestion for getting an inside peek into government is buy Twitter. You'll learn some (laughs) things that way. It's funny, and I agree that they think that that's their interaction with the world. I'd like to talk about the Freedom of Information Act just to mention that it's there. It's the national version of an Open Records Act, and it provides three things. Basic agency information needs to be published in the Federal Register, that other information needs to be available to the public, but then it offers also that information not falling into those first two categories that is not excluded or exempted may be obtained by filing a written request with the appropriate agency. And of course, it sounds so easy. You know, you just send it out and here comes that package shortly thereafter. But it's just like Missouri. It's thorny. My impression from looking at accounts by other people who have tried to do this, don't hold your breath. It might not come. It might be a long time. It might take a lot of work. It might take a lawsuit. Have either of you filed a suit or or have experience with FOIA? I've had some. And despite the delays that I've seen in some of the practice under the Sunshine Law and some of the practice under the Illinois equivalent, Illinois basically has a statute that's very similar to the federal statute. The delay with the federal government and making requests from federal agencies is significantly greater. And the imposition of litigation or the impediments to litigation is significantly greater. That's the only thing I would add. So the limited experience I've had with it is just, it's slow and you don't get anywhere. Yeah, and that's my experience as well. When we've submitted FOIA, it takes a lot longer. It's actually one of the comparatively good benefits of the Missouri law is sort of the three-day rule. I mean, it obviously can be delayed and we'll get into that, I'm sure, later for you know reasonable and detailed explanations, but it does hold their feet to the fire in a way that the FOIA statute does not I wish, you know, that they would tweak that in order to get the turnaround on the federal documents faster because, I mean, we would all be much better informed. Obviously, if some of the national communications that you get a year and a half after the event, if you could get those a week or two after the event, that's the problem. And that's a big problem. Well, everywhere is that, you know, you find out three years later, oh, you know, this guy was uh, beaten to death and it's on video. And now it's starting to come out quicker. A lot of police departments are getting ahead of things. But it used to be a while ago, you wouldn't know about these events for two to three years. It would come out after litigation was filed, a subpoena was served. So it took all of that to get it. And, you know, that's wrong and it shouldn't be that way. In Missouri, we're trying to change that. So let's turn our attention to Missouri's Sunshine Act. I assume it's named after Louis Brandeis, the Supreme Court justice comment, the sunshine is the best disinfectant. In general, it provides public access to government meetings and it provides public access to public records. And then we're gonna pull that apart, walk through the statute, offer some guidance for those who haven't yet filed a Sunshine request, much less brought a lawsuit based upon the Sunshine Act. I thought we could begin with the liberal construction provision at 610.011 of Missouri statutes. What's the importance of that? I think it's uh, what Michael Wolf, when he was a Supreme Court justice, and I think it was Geyer versus Kirkwood, said is the tiebreaker provision that when in doubt, that carries a day. So if you've got competing arguments or competing provisions of law that could go either way, that tiebreaker decides that the records are public because there is a presumption of access. You start with that presumption of access. So not only is the ability to get records construed broadly, but the exceptions rather are construed narrowly. So that does you know, grease the skids, presumably, a lot better than it might otherwise be. So let's talk about the entities subject to the Sunshine Law. 
And I'm just going to mention a few of those listed in the act. Legislative bodies, executives and executive bodies, administrative bodies, judicial bodies, bodies that receive public funds. And it goes on and on and on. It even gets down to quasi-judicial bodies and quasi-public governmental bodies, which I quasi-understand <laughs> by those titles. Maybe if you could each talk about the kinds of entities that you commonly deal with that you have sent Sunshine requests to. We send probably a few a week, if not more. And it's typically a government, a police department, a sheriff's department, a municipality, the state, the state agencies. Occasionally, though, there are these interesting cases, especially with where government is going by sort of outsourcing government work to third parties, where I think it's going to become more important, this determination on what a quasi or a semi-governmental organization is, whether that's sort of by state I think Bi-State does respond to Sunshine requests. There are other groups out there that collect mass amounts of information. For example, Regis is an interesting example. Regis has tons of information about everybody. And whether or not they are a governmental entity, I would say, yes, they are. They are paid to do this by the government. They're paid to hold this information. For those who aren't familiar with Regis, could you say a, a word about what they are? I'm trying to think what it stands for. It's an acronym. I think it's regional justice information. And they essentially house all of the data that's typed into computers in jails by police. So it's a ton of data and it's daily. And they're collecting all this information about various people. So there are questions about how they do that, you know, what access would be provided to something like that. So those are sort of more interesting issues. We don't deal with those issues every day, but I know some people do. And some people are asking some of these deeper questions about how data, big data, I guess we call it in this day and age, how big data is collected. So that's kind of an emerging, I think, issue in the Sunshine Law and in FOIA. But we tend to do meat and potato stuff. Something happened, for example, somebody they're related to in a jail or somebody died and there is video of it. They want it and jails routinely will fight that. They will not want to give the video to the family. But then there's another statute, 610-100, which is sort of a carve out in the Sunshine Law that allows victims or victims' family members, if they're deceased, to get these records that a newspaper wouldn't be able to get. So there's an additional amount of access. And all lawyers should know this. I mean, first of all, sunshine requests are a huge, I think, part of advanced discovery. It's something I think you always do when you can prior to a lawsuit being filed, particularly if you have a government entity involved. You need to find out what's going on. You need to get as much information as possible. Sunshine requests are like discovery, right? Except you're doing it before the litigation is filed. But to me, it's the same thing. And that's sort of what we do. Joe, what's your experience? Principally, you know, my practice within the firm is in representing requesters. But no, my firm, and obviously we talk within the firm, my partners talk to each other, represents a number of municipalities. And so we do, you know, advise them about the law and Hopefully, we're advising them correctly and they're following the advice. In fact, if you go to our website and go to the media practice and go to publications, that's lewisrice.com. I do publish from time to time things about the Sunshine Law. I have several of them here. 
I once published one about two years ago, uh, the 10 best ways to avoid problems with the Sunshine Law for municipal government bodies and other governmental bodies. Yeah, we do cover both sides of the street, if you will. But hopefully, because of that, we're creating a process that would satisfy the likes of the requesters, such as Mr. Petroli here. (laughs) Maybe not all. And I was going to say, well, it's good news because we I don't recall having a Lewis Rice lawyer on any cases. So that means we haven't actually litigated anything where their clients haven't given it. So I would say take their advice. They're probably giving good (laughs) advice to the municipalities because there are plenty of other ones who aren't getting any advice at all and sometimes just make these decisions on an ad hoc basis, off the cuff. And a lot of municipalities just say no as the first thing because they wanna see whether or not you're gonna go back and say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean no? Or I'm gonna sue you. So they're waiting for you to sort of take that next step. So in this game, you have to be assertive. If you're a requester, you can't just send a request and say, I'm done, because you will probably not get those records eight out of 10 times. So you have to go back in and you have to fight. Following up on what Mark just said, I I think you see kind of three kinds of governmental entities in in the way they handle these things. One is the people that just don't believe in the Sunshine Law aren't going to give you anything. Then there's the people who are confused about it and don't understand it. And then there's the lower level clerks that even though maybe they have a process and procedure for responding to requests and, and the entity doesn't tend to be transparent, They're just frustrated by the number of requests that they get and the difficulty in perusing tons of records that may be requested and responding. That's why it's important, regardless of which side I'm representing, there has to be give and take. And Mark mentioned it previously about the three-day rule. I always tell anybody that's responding to requests, if you have it, don't wait three days, give it to them. Right. I mean, but too many governmental entities follow the three-day rule as if it's Three days is a day we have to give it to them. And it's three business days. But if you're going to need more than three days, work it out with the other side. You know, explain the situation. Explain how difficult it is. You know, try to confer and negotiate before you get into a big no, you know, headbanging contest. Right. Right. Or as what the statute says, give them a reasonable and detailed explanation. I mean, that's what it says. And unfortunately and strangely, since 1970, uh, whatever, three, this really hasn't been litigated to get a full understanding of the meaning of what reasonable and detailed is. There was a recent case in the Supreme Court, it was actually Gross v. Parson, where they said, well, this isn't it. So they sent it back. But that was at the motion to dismiss stage. But again, look, we're dealing with this every day. And if a clerk calls me or emails me and says, hey, we're just going to need a few more days, we're fine with that. You know, we're not going to get mad at them. We're not, you know, going to sue them unless they say it's closed. So typically, you know, plaintiff lawyer or lawyers who represent clients who are making these requests, we're okay with it. But it, you have to communicate. And the unfortunate part of it is sometimes you just don't get any communication at all. You don't get a three-day letter. Well, actually, the statute says you have to give it to them immediately. Or if there's a delay, it could be three days or a little longer if there's a reasonable and detailed. So there's a little bit of a gray area there. But I think the idea is you need to explain to people why you can't give it to them immediately. Because the word in the statute is immediately. So is there any, you know, clear line in the sand? The agency or the government writes back and says, we're having trouble because of fill in the blank. We need more time. And then time goes on and on and on. There's there's nothing more in the statute other than, I guess, reasonableness. Yeah, reasonable and detailed. Well, detailed explanation, I think, is the real problem. For example, the St. Louis City basically has an an artificial intelligence program that gives you your three-day response. We've received it. We need more time. Okay, 
Great, but that's not reasonable and detailed explanation. Why do you need more time? Look, some people request an email sent on a particular date at a particular time because they know it exists. So getting that email is easy. Some people request a thousand pages of something else that takes a little bit longer to pull out, and I understand that. There's a reasonable and detailed explanation to not provide that thousand pages in a day. But there isn't a reasonable and detailed explanation to not provide the single email for six months. And the problem is, is, and I know Joe runs into this a lot, there are journalists sending out these requests every day for discrete, small bits of information that they need to write a story. And they're getting this rolled over in St. Louis City. Every month they get an email. We need more time. We need more time. We need 30 more days. But there's no explanation as to why. So I think in our case, for example, regarding airport privatization, one of our counts is that they failed to provide a reasonable and detailed explanation. So hopefully this case and other cases that followed will set a standard in the city and we'll get a good ruling saying that you can't have an artificial intelligence program tell somebody why their request is going to be delayed. You need more than that. Let's talk about what a typical sunshine request looks like. So you don't need an attorney to no. issue one. It could Absolutely be my not. neighbor named Tom who does something to initiate this. And by the way, what an advantage the reporters have, Joe, to have someone like you with your big firm there. When you send one out or your clients send one out, they know there's a you know big gorilla waiting to pounce on them if they don't take this seriously. But then there's, you know, my neighbor who just sends a little, and I'm going to have you describe what it is, you know, whether it needs to be in a special form, does it have special language, like comes now and, you know, our archaic pleadings or what does it look like? The answer to all of that is no, it doesn't require a particular format. You don't have to reference a statute, although it's certainly advisable to do that so yeah. that it's clear what you're asking. I would direct anybody who is, you know, interested in making a request to the attorney general's website where they have forms of the request. So. So that's an attorney general approved form and nobody can say, well, it doesn't comply with the statute or it's not in the proper form. That is probably the best place to go. That's where we started in creating forms for our clients, although we've added other information. I mean, things like if you're going to need more than three days, provide a detailed explanation. If it's going to cost money, let us know up front what it's going to cost, things like that. And if you're claiming an exemption, please detail the exemption that you're relying on. And there is an argument to be made, and there was a judge in Cole County who basically agreed with this, that if you don't assert the exemption in your response, now maybe you say you need more than three days to find out if there is something that's exempt, but if you don't assert the exemption in your response, then that exemption may be waived. Now that is in the case of a permissive exemption. In other words, a, an item that can be disclosed, but is not closed by operation of law, by another statute that says these records aren't available. But it is, I think, incumbent upon the requester to you know, make the request and to use that type of format, although it's certainly not, when I say incumbent, it's certainly not required. It's not something they have to do, but it's best practice. Yeah. This has been a great conversation. We're gonna close it up now, but we'll see you next time on part two. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith. I'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.